Hey y'all, Yen's in here. Okay, so she's up here. Yeah, it's a theory. Climb up the ladder. <laughs> she's like sniffing the shit out of it, dude. Wait, so which one is this? This is Rowena. You beautiful little baby. She is my special needs kitty. Oh. And then Rose is probably asleep upstairs. Please leave this in. <laughs> yeah. All right. Sorry, I just, I knew that it would go badly and Rowena would knock down a plant and we'd have to stop anyway, so. That's hilarious. <laughs> go ahead again. Hey, y'all, yins and yuns, welcome. To the Appalachian Crime Show podcast, I'm Kirsten. And I'm Nikki. And we are following social distancing protocols and recording over Skype, so if this sounds weird, that might be why. <laughs> it's just a little bit, but it's okay. Yeah. I miss my friend. It's probably been almost a month since we actually see each other in person, I guess. I think so. Yeah. Because we recorded the other one really early. Yeah. Yeah, it's been like three weeks. Holy cow. So much has happened in three weeks. We're all going to die. No, we're not. (laughs) Well, and corona-related news, I don't have a job. I got laid off. So At least your pal here knows what that is like. Yes, I know. (laughs) Yes, but if anyone listening to this needs help editing or audio in editing things, please reach out as I need the monies to help pay yes. the bills. Yes, maybe this is a good time to start a Patreon. <laughs> maybe that's what someone was said suggested we should monetize the podcast, and I was like, mm-hmm. we don't have enough listeners to monetize anything. Hey, that thirty dollars a month would help you in any way, shape, or form, don't you? Act- I don't you think gotta feed them that much. <laughs> feed them cat babies somehow (laughs) I know so usually we talk about true crime cases in the beginning but because of corona I asked Nikki if she thought we should talk about maybe like happy news or uplifting news yes Um, you'll still get our rec center at the end but that way we can find happy things and I don't know about you but both of mine are videos I know one of yours is so maybe Nikki will share them too yeah, on the yeah. page so we can do that. Do you want to go first? Uh, Sure. So my first thing is actually not the video that I have. Well, I guess it kind of is in a way. I have become completely obsessed with TikTok, apparently. It's sad. Like, I won't even go there. But I've seen quite a few TikToks and just videos on Facebook, too, of whenever the healthcare workers are going on and off shift at different hospitals. In particular, I saw a video from whatever the major hospital is down in Atlanta, Georgia. But there's people that live in, like, the apartments and stuff surrounding or work in the places surrounding when people are going in and out of shifts at these hospitals all the people that are in their apartments and whatnot are like cheering and clapping for them. And I know that probably some of it's, there might be a couple of those that are like kind of faked videos, but the ones I've seen on Facebook seem like they're pretty accurate because it's people like actually recording firsthand of everyone cheering for them. And like, you can hear them cheering along with them too. And it's just, it's so good. And as somebody that works in healthcare and I've worked in healthcare for God years and years, like literally since I got out of high school, pretty much. It just, it's heartwarming. Yes, I work in a non-clinical setting, so I'm not there firsthand, but I have tons of friends who work down in our hospital, work in like the ICU and up on the floors. And I've got quite a few friends that work in our ER here too. Um, But not only that, just, it really hits close to home because my man friend, Chris, He's a paramedic 
he's still doing his job and taking care of his patients. And EMS has been really hit hard with the whole getting proper PPE because they're one of the last places to get it. So just seeing that appreciation for like healthcare workers in general, just like brings a smile to my face because if you work in healthcare, if you're a nurse or a doctor or EMT or paramedic or a respiratory therapist or CNA even, or, you know, any of those things, you sign up to take care of people and help people. You didn't sign up to possibly get this virus, which is pretty deadly. Yeah. So it's just nice to see that appreciation for healthcare workers and just the videos just make me smile every time I see them. So that's my first bit of good news. (laughs) What is yours? Actually, it's kind of related. So if you haven't figured out, I really like The Office and (laughs) I've been watching it nonstop for the past almost three weeks now that I've been in my house. Mm -hmm. And John Krasinski, who plays Jim on -hmm. The Office, has started a news network. Oh, yes! Started, yes, I've seen it. Started the Some Good News Network, where he records in his house. But what he's trying to do is to spread happy news, which I think kind of gave me the idea for this. So thanks, John Kaczynski, you know, since he listens and all. Just kidding. Thank you. <laughs> Call us. <laughs> um, but he showed some videos of, like, the hospital workers getting cheered about and then there was a video of a girl who had just had her last chemo treatment and so people kept social distancing but like made a parade for her in their cars that her parents drove her through like when she was coming home just really sweet stuff like that he actually had a special guest Steve Carell on the first episode of his news segment but it's really cute and it's just something that's kind of wholesome especially if you're an office fan or just need some bright, you know, brightness in your life. I know right now it's really hard with social media and my cat. Yeah, if you hear like water, that's my fish tank. And if you hear thumping, that's one of my cats. Right now it's Rowena. She's playing with a toy. But anyway, social media, stay off of it if you can. I know it's our, our new source now, but that's something good on social media if you need like happiness. So what's your next thing, Nikki? Um, so my next thing, which is fantastic, and I literally just found this evening, thanks to TikTok yet again, <laughs> there's a children's book that's called Go the Fuck to Sleep. I'm yes. going to apologize now to Miss Ann <laughs> for saying the F word. I love you, but it's it's the title of the book. So, so there's the children's book that's called Go the Fuck to Sleep, which, by the way, if I ever have kids, somebody better buy me that book. There is a video circulating of Samuel L. Jackson reading a book similar called Stay the Fuck Home. And it is the best. If you ever wanted anybody to read a book to you that was called Stay the Fuck Home, it's Samuel L. Jackson because Snake's on a plane. He's the baddest motherfucker around, as he says. So (laughs) I'm going to post it up whenever this episode drops just so that everybody can see it because, oh, my God, it's hilarious. It's fantastic. She and, sent it to me. It's, it's oh very good. God. The last happy thing I have. So my friend, Brianna, shout out. I won't say her last name because I don't know if she wants it associated <laughs> solely with this. But you know you do, girl. You know you do. <laughs> she is my former, a former co-worker of mine and a good friend. And she is bored in her house. She's a very funny person. So in her boredom, she decided to create COVID-19, the musical. It is a seven-minute parody cheesy it's supposed to be cheesy that's why I'm saying it cheesy Mm -hmm. musical that parodies like already written songs I'll have Nikki share that but if you just need some cheesy things it basically turns 
into a love story between COVID-19 and the CDC. <laughs> it's so good. Fantastic. I might be biased, but I think it's really funny. So kind of a lighthearted view of the situation in some ways. Anything else in terms of happy news or both of our stories are non-murder stories today too, right? So this is there is death in mind, but it's a lighter episode, I guess. So okay, cool. Well, uh let's get to our story then. Yes, you first. Okay, so I about died when you shared the Mothman statue on Facebook because I'm telling the story of Mothman today. (laughs) Shut up! When I saw you post it, because I texted Nikki earlier and I said, I'm not going to tell you, because we normally keep our stories, unless it's something that we're afraid the other person's going to do, but for the most part, we keep our stories secret until you know, we record. There was a photo I found from a news article I really wanted Nikki to post when we post episodes. So I said, remind me there's a photo I have to send you, but I'm not going to tell you what it is until we do the story. And then she shared a photo on Facebook of Mothman, which I'll explain what he is if you don't know who he is, with, or she, it, I'm sure it doesn't, it, with a mask, a face mask on. (laughs) The Mothman statue in Point Pleasant. It's fantastic. Which, by the way, that statue is a good seven feet tall and it's on a pedestal that's about three feet tall. <laughs> they worked real hard to get that mask on it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Today, you're all going to learn a lot about Mothman and Point Pleasant. I'm so excited. And I tried to keep with the facts because there were a lot of stories surrounding this. But I tried to find as much detail as I could. So I'm feeling at least, hopefully there's new information for even those of us who are familiar with the Mothman story. Because there was a lot, I know the basics of Mothman before this, but I didn't know the very big details. So every region has its form of a monster. We have the lizard man of scape or swamp in South Carolina. There's the wampus cat of Eastern Tennessee. Oh, I've and heard of wampus cat. Yeah, there are variations of Sasquatch throughout the country. But none are quite like the Mothman of West Virginia. Mothman is a popular creature of folklore in the mountain state. And as someone who participated in many state social studies fairs, there were always at least two projects in the state's local studies category that related to Mothman. And I remember one in particular. I don't know if anyone else did fairs, but it's like the trifold board. And then later on in my fair career, um, you could <laughs> I won states quite a few times. Just oh, girl! You could put like this thing on top of it because it still met the the height requirements, but you could mm-hmm. like put your title up there so you had more room on your board. And someone did like something like that, but they like built the Mothman face and had like these giant Shut red up. eyeballs that lit up. Okay. Oh my gosh, that's fantastic! It's amazing. There may be a reason why people are so interested in this humanoid, as there have even been over 100 recent sightings in Chicago, Chicago, Illinois, of a creature that was described similarly to the Mothman. We are in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, on the evening of November 16, 1966. Now, Point Pleasant is a small town bordering Ohio and the Kanawha and Ohio rivers. And in the 1960s, it had a population of close to 6,000. So I wanted to give you that because that plays a part in some of the stories I'm about to tell. So in this small town, two couples, which, oh my God, this was so frustrating. Trying to find the name of the wives of these couples was difficult. I found them on one article. 
Really? Because they only listed the husbands or they would say Mr. and Mrs. Roger Scarbert. Yeah. It's the 60s, but that was very frustrating. In this small town, two couples, Linda and Roger Scarberry and Steve and Mary Millette, were joyriding in a car after 11 p.m. And they were headed up to the McClintic Wildlife Management Area, which is also known as the TNT Area. And that is an area that had bunkers built into the ground during World War II to store ammunition. And now an interesting fact about this area that may contribute to some of the Mothman essence is that the, mat- <laughs> the materials used to make TNT during World War II were dumped into the ground and seeped in. And a woman who was fishing in one of the lakes in the 60s found red water and told a biologist who then determined that the water had levels of TNT in it. So even as recent as 2010, there was an explosion of one of the underground bunkers, which required a shutdown of the entire area until it was searched for more active explosives. And this area is now overgrown with wildlife. But the Mothman Festival actually leads tours of the TNT area every year, which honestly makes me a little worrisome because I'm like, what if something explodes? What if we need to go? Yes. No. (laughs) Yes. There are a lot of weird things about this town. That's why I wanted to bring that up. We're going to Mothman Festival this year together, you and I. (laughs) It's going to get canceled at this point because we're all going to be in our houses. It's not till September. (laughs) I mean... Let us pray. (laughs) So back to the actual story. That is still the actual story. Back to the couples. (laughs) A few days before, these couples were enjoying the late fall air... Kenneth Duncan and others were digging Duncan's brother's grave when he noticed a brown human being flying across the graveyard. None of the other four men that were with him saw it, but a similar creature was spotted by the Scarberries and the Millettes. So in front of their parked car near midnight, and they were close to that National Armory buildings, they all four saw a non-human creature that had been described as a seven to nine foot tall dark figure with glowing red eyes. And with a wingspan of 10 feet, it is said to be an excellent and fast flyer of up to 100 miles per hour, but clumsy while on the ground. Is it me? (laughs) It's me. (laughs) So this figure chased their car until it went into a field and disappeared. And the Point Pleasant Register covered the story. And Roger Scarberry insisted that if all four of them had not seen it, he would have never said anything because they they know how crazy it sounds. After these incidents, there were four more sightings reported. Two firemen saw a, quote, very large bird with red eyes and Newell Patridge claimed that the Mothman was responsible for his missing dog, as he had spotted the creature in a meadow near his home about 90 minutes before the joyriding couples reported that they encountered it. And he said his TV had started to act odd, so he went outside, and his dog chased after the creature when he had shined his light on it, and his dog never came home. And he also then said that the creature could have been a shite poke or a shag, which is a type of heron like a bird. One of the most infamous incidents associated with Mothman is the collapse of the Silver Bridge on December 15, 1967. Now it is still the deadliest bridge disaster in U.S. history, and it actually enforced stricter guidelines for the National Bridge Inspection Standards, stating that all bridges spanning longer than 20 feet must be inspected at least every two years. And this is because 
The Silver Bridge collapsed due to a structural flaw during rush hour that December, leading 64 people in 31 cars to be sent into the icy Ohio River, because it's December. Only 18 of those 64 survived. Some were not even found till weeks later, when they had to fish out all the cars, mm-hmm. and two bodies were never even recovered. Both of those women were Point Place residents, but many residents were of neighboring towns because the bridge crossed to Ohio, so some of them were from Ohio, and there were actually two or three from Virginia. Previously, people had reported that the bridge would move in sway as you drove on it, and I read a whole article about, like, the structural integrity of the bridge and how this was proof enough that this was why the bridge failed because it was only 40 some years old but there were a lot of reasons why it failed however it was said that mothman was seen at the bridge right before the incident happened and may have been an omen regarding the incident or may have been what caused it there have also been reports of mysterious men in black many times throughout the country, but related to Mothman, they were seen around Point Pleasant quite a bit during the 1960s. And there are various reports about these men, ranging from them being government agents to aliens to time travelers, and that some of them were quite a bit odd or lacked normal human skills like eating food properly or thought it was weird when people would shake their hands to allude that they were like not from this planet. So the men in black were around and apparently threatened people who had stories and had seen Mothman to not talk about the sightings, including journalists. There's a couple theories behind who or what Mothman is. The first one, I'm going to delve into them a little bit. Some of them, they have reasons they're debunked, I guess, mm-hmm. but I'm going to still list them all. So Cornstalk, who was an American Indian who led the Shawnee Nation during the 18th century, was shot to death by American settlers. And folklore spread a tale for about 200 years that in his last dying breaths, he stated he placed a curse upon the land. And that would be maybe associated with Mothman, either that he was Mothman, come back in a spirit form, or that that was the curse in general. But this theory was debunked because there were no written records regarding the incident. And it seems that someone who was unexpectedly shot would have had no time to say a profound statement and place a curse. And this actually reminds me of the character. <laughs> I hate myself for this. When I was reading this whole thing, it reminded me of the character Chief Ken Hotate from Parks and Recreation, who's the owner mm-hmm. of the Wamapoke Casino, who famously said, at least this is the quote I remember him saying, there are two things I know about white people. They love Rachel Ray and they are <laughs> terrified of curses. <laughs> thought of that when I read the article and I was like that makes sense there was also a play written about the incident in the 1920s and that also helped propel the story forward a little bit but they've debunked it and said they don't think that it really happened another theory it was given by Dr. Robert L. Smith who is a WVU so that's West Virginia University associate professor of wildlife biology in the 1960s and he attributed the sighting to the Sandhill Crane with the red eyes being attributed to the red flesh around the crane's eyes. But he said that this was definitely not the crane's normal migration routine route. That kind of, you know, made it seem like, yeah. But there's two times that it's been attributed to a bird. An article on all things interesting actually suggested that, and I'm going to read this as a quote because they just phrased it really well. 
suggested that, quote, the Mothman also bears a striking resemblance to several demon archetypes found among those who have experienced sleep paralysis, perhaps suggesting that the visions are nothing more than the embodiment of typical human fears pulled from the depths of the unconscious and grafted onto real life bird or animal sightings when people panic. So I could see that. Another theory is that Mothman is some kind of extraterrestrial being. And then the last theory that I have is that Mothman is an omen. And there are similar creatures, kind of like Sasquatch has its, you know, similarities throughout regions. I guess there are some similarities to Mothman around the world. It's seen as an omen. So that could be attributed to like the bridge collapse or things like that. Like the Mothman was seen there and then that's a bad thing happened. But today, today, Mothman is embraced by the city of Point Pleasant as a tourist site. And there is a festival each fall, as I mentioned before, a Mothman museum, and a giant Mothman statue, as we talked about earlier, that really depicts the creature having a nice set of abs. And that is... I will I will affirm that is yes. true. I've seen it. <laughs> um, and that is the story of Mothman. Yeah, that's Whoa. my story for this week. Well, what is Ooh. your story, Nikki? Well, my story today is one that I have to give complete props to the podcast Wine and Crime for because they had actually covered this story a few weeks back, month or two back. And it is the Loomis Fargo bank robbery of Charlotte, Carolina. So to start off, although the history of the predecessor, which was Wells Fargo and Company, dates back to 1852, Loomis Fargo and Company was established in 1997 by the consolidation of Wells Fargo Armored Service and Loomis Armored Incorporated. This resulting corporation employed 8,500 people and provided armored transportation, cash handling services, and automatic teller machine maintenance. So it wasn't like a bank per se that like you and I would go to. It Mm -hmm. was more they just transported the cash and were in charge of money for other banks. David Gant, who was a Gulf War veteran, had never been in trouble with the law. He was also married, but neither of those things would matter to him after he met Kelly Campbell at work at Loomis Fargo. So David Gant struck up a relationship with his fellow employee, Kelly Campbell, And they continued to maintain contact even after Campbell left the company. In August of 1997, Campbell informed Gant of an old high school friend of hers, Steve Chambers, who could assist Gant in executing a massive cash robbery of the Loomis Fargo vault in one night. Chambers had actually broached the possibility of a robbery to Campbell earlier in the summer. Gant, Chambers, and Campbell came up with the following plan. Gant would remain in the vault after his shift on the night of the heist, which was October 4th, 1997, and let his co-conspirators into the vault. How was they, he going to stay in the vault? Because he was the night watchman. Sorry, I should have clarified that. Oh, okay. So I was the night say. watchman. Kelly Campbell, I think, was just like a teller or something. So well, I worked in a bank after college, and I know you required, you could get in part of it but you required two people to like get into anything so that's why i was confused sorry no that's all good they would then load as much cash as they could carry into a van meanwhile gant would take fifty thousand dollars which was as much that could be legally carried across the border to mexico without questions and he would flee to mexico with the plan in place gant sent home early 
reported about 6 p.m. a newly hired employee who was assigned to train with him. And after he sent that employee home, he disabled two security cameras, which were near the vault, so that he could prepare for this heist they were doing. Unfortunately, he failed to disable the third camera. Oh, no. And he even stated, I didn't even know about it and overlooked it. I'm just going to preface this now. Gant is not the smartest man in the world. (laughs) Just so y'all know. Because when it says that he has this relationship with Campbell, it's questionable about that, that it's more like he had a workplace crush like crazy on Campbell, but she fed into it for the money. And then he didn't even unhook all the cameras. And so the third camera that he forgot to unhook captured everything that happened that night, by the way. So... (laughs) (sighs) well hello rose (laughs) you see so gant then proceeded to load up about 17.3 million dollars in cash which 11 million of that was in 20 dollar bills oh my god into the back of a company van gant's accomplices soon showed up but now they had another problem so (laughs) there's a reason that loomis fargo used armored cars to move large amounts of cash and it's mainly because it's heavy as shit right so (laughs) um and gant hadn't really thought about the physical challenge of moving such a large sum of money Mm -hmm. so instead the three of them along with i think they had like three other accomplices which i didn't get the names for they just started throwing as much money as they could into the van until they couldn't fit any more in it oh my god and then They finally, once they got all that loaded in, they drove away, which they had drove away with less than what they initially intended to have. Mm -hmm. They still had 17 million in like in the van. Gosh. Yeah. The trio and others who were involved in the plot then drove off to a pretty business called Reynolds and Reynolds, which was in Northwest Charlotte, North Carolina. From there, the money was moved from the company vehicle to the different private vehicles. So to their own vehicles, then keeping with the plan, Gant took 50000 which, like I said, was the max amount you could take across the border without authorization, and left for Mexico. And he ended up winding up at the popular Yucatan Peninsula resort island of Cozumel. The next morning, Loomis Fargo's employees couldn't open the vault, so they called the police. Mm-hmm. When the police came and saw what had happened, they immediately called the FBI because most of the money that was handled at the facility belonged to banks. Right. Which technically made this a bank robbery, which is a federal offense. Investigators considered Gant to be the prime suspect almost right from the beginning. He was the only employee that was unaccounted for the next morning, and videotapes recovered at the Loomis Fargo Charlotte office showed Gant removing giant cubes of cash (laughs) and unloading them into a Loomis Fargo armored van for over an hour. Two days later, when the FBI found the Loomis Fargo armored van, they discovered almost $3.3 in cash that was left in the back of that van. Mm-hmm. And it was later discovered that the thieves had miscalculated the sheer bulk of the small denomination currency and that they simply left the cash that they couldn't take with them in the back of the van. So they were like, oh, it's just small denominations. It can't be much. And it was $3 million. Oh, my God. Investigators also found Gant's pickup truck abandoned at the warehouse. And inside the truck, they found Gant's wedding ring and pretty much figured that this was a sign of Gant's intention to end his relationship with his wife and just be gone. The FBI investigation was aided by the gang's extravagant spending, though. So they didn't really help their case. 
Mm-hmm. They had initially agreed to control their spending for like a year or two mm-hmm. in the belief that the government would, you know, only vigorously and rigorously track the spending habits of any suspects for mm-hmm. like the first year. And then they figured after that first year, oh, they're not going to really worry about us. Right. No, you stole $17 million. They're going to still watch you. Right. <laughs> Chambers had no intention of following those rules, though, and believing that the FBI would never connect him to Gantt, he and his wife, Michelle decided to move from their mobile home in Lincoln County to a huge luxury house in the wealthy Kramer Mountain section of Cramerton. So they kept several furnishings from the previous owners, including, but not limited to, a painting of Elvis Presley on black velvet. And there was a rug that goes down the staircase that's in the house. And it's like this big grand opulent staircase. And Mm -hmm. they talk about this on a wine and crime. And I believe it was like a tiger, like a white tiger print rug. Going down the stairs of the staircase, and they said, We'll keep that, sure. Along with this house, they also bought a BMW Z3 with cash, just flat out paid cash, and made several other large purchases, including a $600 cigar store Indians. So, like one of those ones you see, always see, like out in front of like a cigar store, mm-hmm. a bulldog that was dressed up by. George, like George Patton, General George Patton. Um, and Campbell used part of her share of the money to buy a Toyota Sienna minivan in two cash installments. So she thought, oh, I'll be like sneakier by only paying for the minivan like twice. <laughs> so an additional tip, besides all this extravagant spending that was going by on by these idiots, an additional tip reached the FBI when Michelle Chambers made a huge deposit at a bank. She'd previously been making frequent small deposits so that she wouldn't like garner suspicion. But after one visit, she asked to tell her, how much can I deposit before you have to report it to the feds? <sighs> like she flat out asked, followed by a, don't worry, it's not drug money. Oh my God. And so because she said those things, the bank filled out a suspicious activity report, which ultimately reached the FBI. (laughs) Your train, I remember that was like a big part of my bank training was just like how to like notice these things. (laughs) I mean, that's so dumb. Gant's spending in Mexico was extravagant at first. He had stayed in a luxury hotel and paid for expensive food and activities such as scuba diving and parasailing and then i think it was literally like just like two weeks after he had been down there gant reported to chambers that his supply of money was running low so chambers only sent him eight thousand dollars so he went down with fifty thousand and in like two weeks he was pretty much out of it so chambers sent him eight thousand gant in an order to conserve his money started to like slack up on his spending he also took various measures to change his appearance such as shaving and he did this because a patron at a restaurant down there pointed pointed him out and said, hey, you look like that man that robbed a bank for $20 million. So he thought, I'm just going to shave. They'll never know it's me. Oh, my God. Naturally, Gant started to run out of cash again, and he turned to Chambers again. And Chambers started to get annoyed by his request for more money. So Chambers decided to solve this problem by putting a hit out on him. Chambers had plotted to have Gant killed in a murder-for-hire scheme using a hitman named Michael McKinney. So once that hitman that Chambers had hired, McKinney, arrived in Mexico, though, he actually found that he couldn't bring himself to kill Gant, and instead the two of them started hanging out on the beach together and became friends. So Chambers had paid McKinney, was like, here, go to Mexico. This is 
I can't remember how much money it was, but he was like, go kill this guy because he's going to ruin this all for us. Well, he gets down there. He's like, man, I just can't do it. So when he gets down there and meets Gant and their buddy buddies and they're like hanging out on the beach together, he's like, he calls back to Chambers and he's like, hey, um, I can't do this. I, 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 it's not the right time. Can you send me some more cash because I'm running low? <laughs> and Chambers fucking sends him more cash. Oh, my God. <laughs> McKinney and Gant become buddies and they're just chilling on beaches of Mexico. So although the FBI investigation was able to quickly connect Gant to Kelly Campbell, connecting Gant to Chambers was a little bit more difficult for them. Mm -hmm. Tips had led the FBI to begin monitoring Chambers and his wife's activities, but it wasn't until the FBI recorded a phone call from Gant in Mexico that the final connection was actually made. After successfully tracing Gant's phone call, FBI agents and Mexican police arrested Gant on March 1st, 1998 at, I'm going to butcher this because I'm not the greatest at Spanish pronunciations, at Playa del Carmen, which Mm -hmm. is a city near Cancun. It's a beach. Yeah. Okay. So the next day, Steve and Michelle Chambers and Kelly Campbell, along with four others that were in on this, were all arrested. On March 12th, a Charlotte, North Carolina grand jury indicted the eight co-conspirators for bank larceny and money laundering. And the latter offense was included because of how they spent the stolen money. So because of the fact that they went all out and went stupid with all that money, Mm -hmm. that's why they did the laundering charges. So nine other relatives and friends were also charged with money laundering as they had co-signed for safe deposit boxes used to source some of the money and prosecutors opted to charge them on the grounds that they should have known the money was obtained illegally. Mm-hmm. And on similar grounds, four other people were ultimately also charged with money laundering. All but one of the defendants pleaded guilty. They received sentences ranging from probation for several years, or for several of the relatives, to 11 years and three months in federal prison for Steve Chambers. Uh, Chambers was also fined $3.5 million. The only defendant to not plead guilty was Chambers' attorney, Jeff Goller. So I guess he got, like, charged too. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was tried and found guilty of money laundering and sentenced to eight years in prison. So by comparison, though, Gant only served seven years in prison, and he was only fined $26,000 for his part in this. 26000 26000 U.S. dollars is all he was fined. He was released in 2006. Michelle Chambers received a harsher sentence than Gant. She served seven years and eight months because she had actually violated several conditions of her bond so the defendants were targets of many jokes in charlotte and across the country in part because of their extravagant spending Mm -hmm. this is terrible too because i think all of these people that were involved in this lived in like trailer parks and stuff so that's kind of where like people were trying to make jokes at their expense for that which if you live in a trailer, that's good and well. I mean, I live in a double wide trailer, so I'm not, I ain't going to shame nobody for what they live in, for sure. So for a time, though, it was nicknamed the Hillbilly Heist because nearly all the major players in the case came from small towns all around Charlotte. It was later confirmed by the FBI that more than 88% of the stolen cash had been located or otherwise accounted for. However, there was still more than $2 million missing to this day from that. So after his release, Gant ended up taking a job as a construction worker and was eventually brought on as a consultant for the 26 movie Masterminds, which was based on the Loomis Fargo heist. Mm-hmm. It was written by Emily Spivey, directed by Jared Hess, and it stars Zach Galifianakis as Gant, 
Kristen Wiig as Campbell and Owen Wilson as Chambers with Jason Sudeikis as McKinney. Oh, gosh. Uh, yeah. But because of the fact that he still owes millions to the IRS, so he only had a $26,000 fine from the but courts. He, he still but has he, to pay back the money, right? Yeah, he owes millions to the IRS for what uh-huh. he stole. He couldn't be paid for his consulting spot on the film. Um, he even states, I'll work construction. I'll never pay it off on my paycheck. So, But thanks in part to that film, the crazy and outlandish story of David Gant and the Loomis Fargo Heist will definitely live on for many, many years to come. So that is my story. It's hilarious. I haven't, I need to watch this movie, Masterminds. I've, I think it's on Netflix currently, but it sounds pretty good. I love it. I love it. For a cold case today, which is obviously a sad story, I was looking for a cold case. I remembered this cold case that there was a billboard for where I used to live in Kentucky, and I couldn't remember the name, and so I kept trying to search for it. I couldn't find it, but where I lived was a small country town in the middle of eastern Kentucky with no cell phone signal, no high-speed internet. There's two stoplights, but technically they don't really need them, and... (laughs) So while I was searching for it, I ended up finding someone who was from a very similar type of town, just one county over from where I lived. So I decided to do that one. And it's an older case. And I thought it was kind of interesting. I lived in Leslie County, Kentucky, and this took place in Perry County. Perry County is the county with the Walmart. So we had like IGA and Dollar General. Oh, and there was a save a lot where there's not enough room for you to go with two people down the aisle at the same time. But we're going to an unincorporated town in Perry County called Dwarf. So in 1966, Juanita Ritchie was last seen on November 1st grocery shopping in Rowdy, which is also in Perry County, before she went missing without a trace. Juanita was the mother of six children and was only 38 years old at the time of her disappearance. And she was not reported missing until a week later. And then the Kentucky police branch in Perry County didn't seem to take things too seriously, especially with missing adults back then. So they really never did a big search for her. Her brothers described her as a beautiful person inside and out who was strongly devoted to her children. And at the time of her disappearance, she was anywhere between 120 to 150 pounds and was somewhere between 5'2 to 5'7. And I'm not really sure why there's such a large gap in between like that kind of knowledge, especially since she had six kids, you would think there'd be something on like hospital records stating at least like her height. I mean, I don't know. Anyway, in 1993, an unnamed man reportedly gave a letter to the police admitting that he had killed Juanita while attempting to rape her. However, the police didn't pursue this lead. Then in 2012, Juanita's brother, Scott, received an anonymous phone call from a woman saying Juanita's remains could be found in the bottom of a specific well in Rowdy, which is where she disappeared. That was 1966. Now we're in 2012. So the police pumped the well and didn't find anything. They actually helped with this part. Then 
One of his brothers, Scott, went back a second time and had it pumped again. And this time, a like part of concrete came up. And I think what that means, it's alluding to like someone had dumped concrete to like cover a body in the well. The last article I could find on this, he was hoping to pump it again and get more concrete, potentially to get DNA from the concrete to see if his sister was down there because the police had deemed that the well was really unsafe and unstructurally sound. So they didn't want to send anyone like physically in the well. They ran her social security number and nothing has come up since her disappearance. So her brothers have basically said that they just want to have her home so they could give her a proper burial and a headstone. And they're not worried about putting someone in jail now. They just want her home. In an article in the Hazard Herald, they said they alluded to the fact that people involved were dead. So I'm not sure if they knew the name of the person who had like admitted to this killing, mm-hmm. but they just want to find her. They just want to find her remains. So if anyone knows anything about Juanita's disappearance, potential murder, or where her remains can be found, they can call the Kentucky State Police at 606 435 6069. Again, this is an older case, but. Since it was near where I lived, I don't know if anyone in Kentucky is listening, but I thought it would be worth a shot. Sometimes there's small town secrets that people know. And like we always say, if you don't feel comfortable sharing it, send it to us and we'll share it for you. That's my cold case this week. It's a good one. I like it. I love when we do like these old, old ones because it's ones that people probably have absolutely no idea about. Yeah. And, and, and people get forgotten, you know, which is Mm -hmm. sad. I know I was on, I think it was web sleuths researching this and there's actually more on this than I normally find on like these smaller cold cases Mm -hmm. because someone had like copied the text from the newspaper article from like the two thousands, but the web sleuths article, you know, was saying, there were people on there saying that a lot of people would go missing during these times, like back in the sixties and, and fifties, but people just assume they're an adult. They can do whatever they want. Yeah. And we weren't as avid about searching for people as we are now, but I mean, you kind of have the same thing too, where it's like people almost have to go missing for 24 or 48 hours before the police will take anything seriously, unless there's a reason for them to believe so. Yeah. And that's really sad. And, you know, they were stating that there's a bunch of people that went missing that, Maybe their family and friends knew about, but they never were reported missing and no one knows where they are. And they just like vanished, which is really unfortunate. But I mean, hopefully too, with the familial DNA, we'll start identifying a lot more of these bodies and a lot of these missing people. I mean, obviously there are going to be remains that won't be found for various reasons, but I think these older cases are just as important because her brothers are still alive. And I mean, Mm -hmm. her kids are probably still alive. A lot of them. And I don't know how old they were. I didn't, I couldn't find that, but they probably care. You know, they just want their mom know where their mom is. So, Mm -hmm. well, Nikki, it's your favorite time of the podcast episode. Oh, you mean it's Rex and Rex and Rex and You know you missed that. <laughs> rec center. So my rec center today is a YouTube channel because quarantine time and work from home. Well, I don't watch YouTube while I'm working from home uh, after I finish my work for the day. But I am absolutely positively obsessed with Bon Appetit's YouTube page. And I know it's been like a thing for a while, but I have literally been watching this forever. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why I've never brought it up on Rec Center before. But if you're not watching 
Bon Appetit's YouTube page, what are you doing with your life? Like, for real. Because okay. when Claire does Gourmet Makes is mm-hmm. fantastic. I love, bless her heart, I love her little mental breakdowns during the whole course of an episode. <laughs> and her triumph at the end. And then, like, when Brad does It's Alive, that series is fantastic. Claire and Brad are, like, goals. They're fantastic. And I just love it. That's not to say Chris Morocco is not fantastic with his, what, what is the one he does where he like has to, he's blindfolded and then he I'm has really to make I'm really bad with titles, it. so, but yeah. I can't remember that one, but yeah, I mean, the whole channel's fantastic. You don't know what you're missing if you're not watching it, so that is my rec center for today. And yours, my dear? My rec center is, I kind of talked about it in the beginning, but we're going through a pandemic. It's pretty obvious about that. And... I guess it's like a two-part rec center. So my first is that, you know, right now a lot of us, especially people with mental health or physical or any kind of health issues, are are having like trauma responses because of what's mm-hmm. happening. So a lot of people first started posting, you know, with people having to stay home that this is the time that you can do the things that, you know, you never we're able to do, or this is the time where great art's going to come out. And I'm sure that's true. I mean, there's a lot of great stuff coming out. There is, but some people like myself, for example, just lost their job. I don't know when I'm going back. And so for me, that's not necessarily a priority right now to pursue and do all these things right now. It's trying to find all these side gigs to help make up the lack of income that I have just so I can pay my bills. So I don't have to move out of my house. Mm -hmm. So my recommendation is that be easy on yourself. And also if you're able to, because I know it's so, so easy. I did it for the majority of the past few days because I found out I lost my job is that don't just lay on the couch and watch Netflix or TikTok or things get up and find something that's not on the screen, even if it's for just a little Mm -hmm. bit of the day at a time. You know, I went outside and started to clean out my flower beds or I just sat out on my porch and did stuff. Even if I was on my computer, I was still like on my porch. So I got some sunlight. I have all these canvases that I need to repaint that I've never had time to repaint that I want to hang. I might be able to do that now when I like, you know, have a moment to like clear my head, read a book, find something that's not on a screen to do. I don't know about you, but I've had to stay off Facebook a lot because mm-hmm. of everything that's going on. That was really long winded, but yep, that's my rec center. Anything else? Um, I'm just going to say the prereqs that everybody else is hearing right now. Wash your hands, cover your mouth when you cough or you sneeze and don't do so directly into your hands. Cause that's really gross <laughs> and stay home and stay home. Yes. Yeah, stay home. You know what? While you're outside weeding your garden or your flower beds, pop in your earbuds and listen to your favorite podcast. <clears throat> the Appalachian crime trail, <laughs> go back and re-listen, you know, or it doesn't have to be us, but a lot you know. of podcasts have actually seen, I've noticed, um, I think it was Sarah Turney's podcast I, mm-hmm. in that group. A lot of podcasts are seeing a dip in listening, probably because so many people have been put out of work. And that's what I know. That's what I'll listen to in the morning when I'm getting oh, ready or stuff. Yep. Don't forget about your podcast just because you're not at work anymore. Well, and the good thing is, if you are listening to a podcast, guess what? You can listen to a podcast while you're doing something else that's activity. Mm-hmm. So not only are you helping those podcasts out, like we don't get paid for this, obviously. We have stated it plenty of times before. We don't get paid. <laughs> but there are 
there are podcasts like Wine and Crime or, I mean, I know my favorite murder, but they're more bigger and stuff. But there's these smaller podcasts that still have a big enough fan base to where that is those podcasters. That's their sole job. Like the Wine and Crime gals, this is what they do for work. And so they have noticed the hit, but they're also still trying to give back to like local artists like using like freelancers and whatnot so it's just everybody's got to remember to take care of everybody still keep your distance so you don't get each other sick (laughs) yeah if you have the privilege of being able to stay home please stay home and staying home does not mean that your friends come over to your house it means that you don't see anybody that's not in your immediate family anything else i don't think so okay well thanks y'all for listening we appreciate you be kind Bye, Bye, y'all. I hope that was together. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Appalachian Crime Trail Podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to leave a review and subscribe if you enjoyed our episode. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Stay kind and stay safe, y'all.